you're listening to Just One of the Guys, the podcast that Dan DiTio thinks is a sin. Welcome to another fun-filled, action-packed, crazy, wild and woolly, and other superlative-filled episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is the internet radio show dedicated to bringing you the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, putting a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. Hi again, my name is Sean Eagle, and I'd like to welcome you to the show. This week, we're going to be taking a look at some comics that I really wasn't planning on covering until the famed Michael Bailey of From Crisis to Crisis, Views of the Long Box, and a myriad of other podcasts across the internet asked if I was going to do. And speaking to him about this podcast, he asked if I was going to cover the Emerald on 2 series simply because it covered Guy Gardner and also it came out around the same time as the Greenland comic books. I thought to myself initially I probably wouldn't cover it, but then thinking it was covering Guy Gardner, might as well. But then again, why would I cover Emerald Dawn 2 if I wasn't initially going to cover Emerald Dawn 1? So, this week and next week, we're going to be covering the six-issue series that basically told the origin story before Jeff Johns botched it all up. Well, I can't say Jeff Johns botched it all up, but from what I've heard, Jeff Johns' one wasn't as good as this one. And the fact that Dan DiDio has kind of poo-pooed it and even outright called what happened in this story a sin for Hal Jordan really does a disservice to the story. It's a really great, enjoyable story, and we're going to get to talking about it here in a few. Overall, this is a really great story, and I'm certain for all of you who have seen the Green Lantern movie starring Ryan Reynolds, you'll be able to notice some parallels between this comic and the movie. In fact, in my opinion, if they had actually adapted the Emerald Dawn story for the movie, it would have been a heck of a lot better movie. I'd also like to recommend for Green Lantern fans for you to check out the Cartoon Network Saturday morning shows Young Justice and Green Lantern the Animated Series. If you're a Green Lantern fan, you've got to catch the series. And if you're like me, a Guy Gardner fan, you'll find it fun seeing Guy Gardner as a sort of secondary character in the Young Justice series. But with pre-show stuff out of the way, let's take a little break, play a promo, and we'll get back to issue number one of Green Lantern Emerald Dawn. Stay tuned, everyone. What did you say your name was? Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the USS Enterprise. Which one of you is the captain? 
violate the treaty, Captain? Red alert! All hands! Battle stations! What are you scratching at? Incorrect. Can we just get down to it, please? Prepare to attack. All hands battle stations. Monthly Mondays, available the second Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. And welcome back. I'm going to have to pull the curtain back a little on this uh, episode. Unfortunately, I didn't have original comics of Emerald Dawn, and I was too lazy of a bugger to go out on eBay and find copies of Emerald Dawn, so I will be doing my synopsizing from the trade paperback. So, unfortunately, we won't be getting any ads or anything from the letters column, but I think the story will suffice, and it's a good story, and let's go ahead and get into it. Emerald Dawn number 1, chapter 1, was titled The Sign. The writer was Jim Owsley, the artist was M.D. Bright, the inker was Romeo Tangal, the letter was Albert de Guzman, the colorist was Anthony Tolan, the assistant editor was Kevin Tooley, and the editor was Andy Helfer. The story opens with a shot of the breaking dawn. And no, I don't mean the Twilight movie. Across the sky streaks an experimental jet, piloted by one Martin Jordan. As Martin pushes the plane to its limits, Martin's family, Hal, Jack, as well as some other onlookers, awe at the pilot's skill. But as they're watching, something goes wrong with the plane. Unwilling to eject, Martin tries to land the plane at Ferris Aircraft and crashes the plane into the ground, in front of his shocked children. Some time has passed. Michael Bradley and Charlie Niemeyer will get the reference, and we see an older Hal, Jack, Andy, their friend, Dee, Jack's girlfriend, and Biff, Hal's supervisor, sitting at a bar, musing over Hal getting canned from his pilot position with Ferris. As Biff is ribbing Hal about getting demoted to flying simulators, Hal's ex-girlfriend, Carol Ferris, walks in, none too happy with Hal. Biff, Carol's new boyfriend, leaves the group to join Carol. After a few more rounds, Hal, Jack, Andy, and Dee climb into Hal's Jeep and head home. Being distracted by the booze and his thoughts of his own life's downturn, Hal flips the Jeep as he is distracted by a roadside sign. Cut to the hospital where a bandaged Hal Jordan is greeted by a none-too-happy RN and a disappointed Carol Ferris. Hal tries to plead his case, that it was the sign that caused the crash. But Carol leaves the hospital room with a slam of the door. The next day, we see Hal running simulations in the... simulator. He is still woozy from the previous night's crash and the previous night's drinking, 
and Biff is not making the simulation easy. While the tests are going on, Carol and her father argue about who should be flying planes now that Andy is in the hospital. As Hal is trying to keep from spewing technicolor rainbows, the simulator is ripped from its base and taken to the middle of a desert while an exposition dump is played in Hal's headphones. As the simulator lands at the base of a crashed alien ship, a green beam pushes Hal towards the body of the ship's dying pilot, Avin Sur. He tells Hal that the ring has chosen him, how to charge it, and then he dies as the ring jumps onto Hal's finger, creating the Green Lantern uniform on him. Yelling that he wants to get out of there, the ring responds by blasting him high into the sky, then plummeting him back to Earth. Worried that Carol would be concerned about him, Hal heads to the nearest payphone and calls Ferris Air. Carol, angry about the assumed abduction of the simulator, tells Hal that Jack and Dee are alright and are going to be released tomorrow. But Andy is paralyzed. Baby for life. Frustrated, Hal flies off to the presumed source of all his troubles, the road sign by the crash. But as he smashes through it, he loses all the power in his ring, probably due to the fact that the sign was a bright yellow. Well, what we get here is a pretty standard retelling of the origin. Now, unfortunately, I don't know whether this origin was set forth in the original comics during the Silver Age, I may have to ask Thomas D.J. about that when I talk with him. But it is pretty similar to what goes on in the Green Lantern movie, especially if you've watched the extended cut of the Green Lantern movie. Other than that, my only real note is that James Owsley, who eventually became Christopher Priest, was the writer for only the first issue, and afterwards Keith Giffen took over. No real reason was given for his departure, but some people speculate that it might have been that he was doing backups in Action Comics Weekly. But since my notes are minimal for this issue, let's take a break, and we'll come back with issue number two of Emerald Dawn number one. said Mongo, didn't he? That's wrong character, wrong universe, and wrong galaxy. Hold on just one sec. Ah, here we go. Flash Legacies, a podcast connecting the adventures of Wally West, the third hero to be known as The Flash. Join me, Dave Walker, in my bi-weekly journey as I look at Wally's career from when he first donned the mantle of the Flash all the way up to the return of Barry Allen. Find me at flashlegacies.limson.com And with that promo out of the way, let's head into Chapter 2 of Emerald Dawn. 
Chapter 2, the second part of Emerald Dawn, obviously, was titled The Trial. The plot and breakdowns were by Keith Giffen, the script was by Gerard Jones, the inker was Romeo Tangal, letterer was Albert Guzman, colorist was Anthony Tolan, assistant editor was Kevin Dooley, and editor was Andy Helfer. The story begins with Hal Jordan piloting an experimental plane, pushing it to its limits, going higher than any pilot ever has before. But, in a situation like its father's, the plane begins to malfunction, causing the plane to spiral down towards the ground, heading towards a giant green lantern. As the plane crashes into the lantern, Hal awakens from the side of the road, wondering why a hotel sign would knock him out but a 20,000-foot drop to the desert floor would not. Absent-mindedly, Hal walks into the road in front of an oncoming car, which he stops with a ring-powered airbag. Worried about flying, Hal asks the freaked-out driver for a lift. After being dropped off at the hospital, Hal visits the paralyzed Andy, scanning him with his ring. Hearing the police outside the room looking for him, Hal makes a hasty exit and decides to conceal his identity with an eyepiece mask. Hal ponders his predicament until he sees a Ferris aircraft flying by. Hal buzzes the pilot to say hello, and to no one's surprise but Hal, the pilot freaks out and loses control of the plane. Hal safely lands the plane with a ring construct hand and is approached by the members of Ferris Air. Carol, not knowing who this is, and giving Hal a good look over, thanks the Green Lantern as the pilot comes to pitch him out. Feeling underappreciated, Hal takes off as his energy signature is being watched from a giant yellow robot waiting on the moon. The creature heads towards the crashed ship and finds the decomposing body of Avansur. Enraged by the lantern's death, the golden Gundam finds his ring has chosen its successor, and it heads off after it. Meanwhile, Hal has decided to turn himself in. After getting a talking to by a gruffer clay analog, the yellow alien breaks into the jail and goes all Terminator-style on the police. After the alien takes down a wall, Hal runs to grab his confiscated ring. He finds it amongst the rubble, puts it on, and plans to put the beat down on the amber animatron. But the ring does nothing, and the yellow alien picks up Hal, demanding he take him to the Guardians. Alright, in the second chapter of the story, we get the basic antagonist set up. And it's kind of neat because this antagonist, although, yes, it's a completely yellow alien armored thing, is a kind of unique alien. And it's going to be more than a match for Hal in the Green Lantern Corps, not only because of its uh, yellow armor, but also because it holds kind of a secret that the Guardians haven't really want to say about who it is but we'll be finding out more about that in later issues. So, let's go on to some notes for this issue. Let's start with uh, page 5, panel 5. And if you are wondering, surprisingly enough, the trade did print the page numbers in the book, so I actually can tell you the page numbers that were in the comic rather than the page numbers that are in the trade. So this technically is page 5, panel 5. We get Hal stopping the car with the giant ring construct airbag, and 
I'm wondering how that works, because, yeah, it's an airbag, but the car was coming along in a pretty good clip. It had to brake hard to stop from hitting him. And I'm thinking that hitting that airbag would do more than just a little damage to the car, as well as the driver inside it. So how uh, may more have just freaked out the guy and instead might have almost, you know, caused grave bodily harm to him. So not a good appearance for our first introduction to Green Lantern. Page 6, panel 7. Well, we get Hal introducing himself to Andy and telling what's going on, and then as the police come in, Hal turns into Green Lantern, and Andy knows Hal's secret identity. Hmm. Paralyzed Andy, who can really do nothing but talk to people, knows the secret identity of this new superhero. Thank goodness he's going to be safe throughout the entire rest of this series. Page 7, page 4. Like I said in the notes, Hal decides to put a mask on himself to conceal his identity. Now, you have to wonder whether he was trying to conceal his identity so no one would know secretly he was Hal Jordan, or if he was trying to conceal his identity so the police wouldn't try and arrest this green tight-wearing freak. And speaking of green tights, we get page 9, panel 3, and boy, the ladies sure do love a man in uniform. Especially if it's a tight uniform that shows off your package. Well, at least that's what Hal thinks. Of course, Hal thinks everyone is looking at his package. That's who Hal is. But in this panel, we get, you know, Hal looking down at Carol and... He thinks that Carol is just checking him up and down. So, just another example of Hal's incredibly large ego. Page 10, we get a shot of our protagonist, and amazingly enough, like I said, he's all yellow. Completely covered in yellow armor. Wholly and totally yellow. Yes, a unique character for the Green Lantern to fight whose entire modus operandi is that he's yellow. Okay, all sarcasm aside, it's a neat design. The alien's a giant yellow armored... Looks like robot. If Looks like it could be C-3PO if he just buffed up a bit. But the kind of neat thing is his head. It kind of looks like the cover to that heavy metal magazine where the alien spaceship is flying down over the White House and the spaceship itself looks kind of like a smiley face. That's what his head sort of looks like, except it's completely yellow. So, interesting design, just very, very yellow, and very, very obvious to be a antagonist for the Green Lantern. Page 16, panel 3. I'm going to shot of the clay analog, except this time, instead of being an annoying hippie, he's sort of a... Uh, Ernest Hemingway-type-looking old man. and He's such a unique-looking character. I'm wondering if he's not photo-referenced from someone. I'm wondering if he's not either someone on the art team or someone on the writing team. You know, I've known Giffen to do that and put members of the writing or art or editorial team into his comic. So if anyone's listening to this show and they have some idea who this character might be an analog of... Write in and let me know. I'd be interested to find out. Also on page 16, panel 6, we get Hal referencing the JSA All-Star Squadron. In fact, he says, I can't believe this. 
With this ring, I'm probably the most powerful man on Earth. I've heard of people with powers like this, from World War II, but nobody since. Nobody till me. And here I am. So, I'm wondering if Hal's referencing the JSA, which is nice, because with the crisis happening, the JSA kind of... Well, they were kind of screwed over continuity-wise. But he might just be referencing the original Green Lantern, Alan Scott, who had the same sort of ring and the same sort of power. So, you never know. It's a neat callback, regardless. Page 17, we get a panel of this giant yellow alien crashing into the police station. And it has just basically killed a bunch of police officers. Now, yes, this is Comics Code approved, and this is prior to the all-rapey, all-violent, all-dark DC of today, but you kind of got to wonder, how were they able to get away with such violence in the comic book? I mean, yes, it's all off-screen, and yes, you don't see bodies strewn around and dismembered limbs and whatnot, but yeah, it's pretty much inferred that this giant rampaging yellow thing is basically taking a bunch of lives so it's kind of neat in the fact that they don't feel the need to show the gore but it's kind of odd that you know they actually show this level of violence especially on page 20 panel 2 where the alien fires basically a giant energy beam at the clay analog who's trying to run out of jail and off panel pretty much You've got to imagine fries him, so pretty violent stuff. And finally, page 22, we get a nice shot of the alien holding Hal Jordan in his hand, getting ready to crush him, and Hal's freaking out, but sort of the weird thing is the way Hal's hair is covering his face, it looks like Hal's got Justin Bieber hair. Unfortunately, Justin Bieber hair about 20 years too early. And with that, that wraps up notes for Chapter 2. We're going to take another quick break, play a promo, and then come back with Chapter 3. And we'll get to that here after this. Hey gang, Tom DJ of Better in the Dark here. As I've discussed in the podcast, which you can find at earth2.net, I suffer from mental illness. Part of this illness includes struggling with suicidal thoughts. Now I'm lucky. I've got great friends, family, and yes, even fans who give me the strength to conquer those thoughts every day. Some people aren't so lucky. For them, there's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, providing support and advice to pull those people through the darkest moments of their lives. For the months of March and April 2012, Better in the Dark is running a special BITD challenge. We're asking our fans to go to SuicidePreventionLifeline.com and donate at least $10. The donations are tax-deductible, and you'll be doing something truly great. On top of that, if you forward a copy of your receipt to Better in the Dark at Earth2.net, that's Better in the Dark at Earth-2.net, you may be eligible for special goodies from us, a special director's court on Brian De Palma that you'll be listed as co-producer on, plus the possibility of free audio commentaries on some of De Palma's films from me and my co-host, Derek Ferguson. For more details, listen to recent episodes of Better in the Dark. Please help me send a lifeline out to those who need it. Meet the BITD Challenge. Thank you for your time and help. Welcome back. I'd like to encourage all of my listeners, if you can, donate some small amount to the National Suicide Prevention Helpline, it's a really noble cause, and Thomas has said that if he gets enough donations, I can't remember the exact amount, but he said if he gets enough donations sent in via email, receipts for your donations, that is, he'll do an audio commentary for a Brian De Palma film. And being that Thomas is not the biggest Brian De Palma fan, it'd be kind of a treat to have him do that commentary. 
But speaking of commentary, again, that was a horrible segue. We're going to go on to the third issue of Emerald Dawn, Chapter 3, titled The Ring. The plot and breakdowns, again, were by Keith Giffen. The script was by Gerard Jones. The penciler was Empty Bright. Inker was Romeo Tongal. Letterer was Albert de Guzman. Colorist was Anthony Tolan. Assistant editor was Kevin Dooley. And editor was Andy Helfer. The story opens on Hal Jordan as Green Lantern being crushed by the giant yellow alien. Suddenly, the power on his ring gives out, and the alien tosses Hal away and follows the latent energy trail. Free from jail, since it looks like all the policemen on duty are dead, Hal hitches a ride back to Ferris Air, only to be stopped by a police barricade. It seems that there was some kind of disaster up ahead, and fearing the worst, Hal runs past the officers to see the remains of the hospital, the one that his friend Andy was recovering in. The rescuers tell Hal that there weren't any survivors, and that there were some huge creatures smashing the place. Wondering why he was given the ring, and why this creature is looking for him, Hal realizes that the alien is tracking the ring to locations that Hal has been, including Ferris Air. Seeing that the alien has trashed Ferris as badly as the hospital, Hal heads back to the crashed alien ship where he got the ring. He finds the lantern and recharges the ring. Wondering what's going on, the ring does an exposition dump on Hal, filling him in on Avensura's last mission and how he was mortally wounded and crashed on Earth. As Hal is watching this ring-based movie, the yellow alien crashes in and attacks. Fighting McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leland, 2011, all rights reserved, ensues until Hal sets off the crash ship engines, causing a nuclear explosion. If you're knowledgeable of the Joseph Campbell heroic story arc, you've got to kind of know what's going on here. This part three is the part where the hero has a tragedy in his life, which basically sets him forth on his hero's journey. It was effectively done in the Star Wars original trilogy, and it's really effectively done here. Getting on with notes, we've got page two, panel two, and I bet Hal's pretty thankful that the power ran out of his ring, because effectively he couldn't do anything against the big yellow alien, and since the alien was about ready to crush his head anyway, the fact that the power went out, and it made the alien have to go look for the power energy of the Green Lantern, forcing him to drop Hal, was probably a good thing. But it is kind of odd that the alien, who previously had seen Hal, didn't realize that he had just lost the charge on his ring and was still Green Lantern, so it's kind of just a plot device to get the alien to go off and destroy some other stuff. Page 3, panel 2, you get a shot of Hal walking out of the jail because there's basically a giant hole in the wall of the jail, and all of the bodies of the police officers are lying there smoldering. So, the big yellow alien has given Hal a get-out-of-jail-free card. Page 6, panel 2, we get the scene where Andy, ironically the only person who knows that Hal Jordan is Green Lantern, has met a tragic end. 
I'm wondering if any of you didn't see that coming. I mean, it was a pretty obvious setup. You know, oh, here's the guy who's Hal's friend who sees him transform into Green Lantern, who suddenly, by the next couple of chapters, meets a horrible fate. You know, we can't have our superheroes, you know, with friends, knowing that they're you know, superheroes. It just wouldn't work in a comic book medium. Page 11, we finally get the ring talking to Hal, and it's nice he does this expo- exposition dump that basically tells Hal what's been going on, why Abin was chasing this alien, and then page 12, we get this nice little ring construct-based movie where the ring basically gives Hal a movie version of what went on with Abin Sur and this alien. Essentially a bit of virtual reality that is probably much cooler, but you don't have to wear the enormous goggles or gloves. So, there's a bonus. Page 16, panels 2 and 3. Abin, knowing that the uh, ring won't work against the yellow of the alien's armor, decides to do something pretty clever, and he takes the floor of the ship, and he tries to mold it into a prison. He takes the iron or the metal of the floor and sort of bends the bars to try and wrap around the alien to try and contain it. It's a neat little effect, and, you know, it's shows the cleverness of Abin and you know what he can do with the ring, especially when it's being limited by the alien being colored yellow. Page 20, panel 1, the uh, alien burst into the ship, he's found Hal out again, and you know the fight begins, so the whole ring-struck holodeck thing goes away, and as the alien blasts at Hal, he moves quickly out of the way, and Hal marvels at the fact that he moved out of the way so quickly, and the ring comments to him that, well, the ring automatically does that for him, allows him to avoid hits by energy weapons and things like that. What I'm wondering is, back a couple of issues ago, and Guy and his, when we were covering the Guy and his Nort storyline, Guy basically got hit by a Green Lantern beam himself, so I'm wondering why the ring didn't move him out of the way like it did with Hal here. Probably just a plot device again, to further the story, but so be it. And finally, page 22, you get the awesome splash page of this alien spaceship explosion. Except, you kind of got to wonder what kind of fuel or fissionable material they're using to make this explosion, because in the explosion, the nuclear blast is a bright pink. And, you know, it being a mushroom cloud... You know, I could make some sort of reference to it being a phallic thing, but I'm not going to, because this is a classy podcast. But that's the end of my notes. That's the end of these first three issues. Next week, we're going to cover the next three issues, four, five, and six, obviously. Wrap up Emerald Dawn, and then the week after that, we've got Emerald Dawn 2. So, I hope you guys are enjoying the show. Please write in if you have any comments or questions uh, to just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com. I hope you guys are listening to some of the podcasts that I promo on these. They're all podcasts that I love to listen to, and I think you would probably love to listen to as well. So, until next week, take care, see you around, and have a good week. Bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. Hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, 
humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcome. All spam bots are warmly welcome, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at justoneoftheguys, all one word, dot libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys Podcast. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there, because I don't have an account there. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you obviously can spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's podcast was Know Your Enemy by Green Day, from their album, aptly titled Know Your Enemy. If you'd like to purchase this, you can go to iTunes and download it there, or download the album there. But if you really want to help out a friend of mine, please go to twotruefreaks.libson.com, click on the Amazon banner at the top of the page, and go download the song from there, download the album from there, or buy the CD from there. You'd be helping out a podcast friend of mine, and keeping fine quality Demonzacore podcast playing on the air for all of eternity. Or at least until Scott and Chris get bored.